Uh, last week, I was asked by someone to revisit my approach to interpreting the Song of Solomon. So I thought I would take a little bit of time to do that this morning and go back to that first sermon that I preached when we began our series. And you may remember me saying, if someone were to come to me and ask the question, is the Song of Solomon primarily about human love or divine love, my answer would be yes. Because from a biblical perspective, I believe these two things are interdependent. It's why we read in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. It makes these two realities inseparable, which is why I believe the Song of Solomon primarily describes the beauty of God's design for the covenant relationship of marriage. But we also know that marriage was created in the image of God, and as such, it is intended to reflect the infinite love of God which should tell us that anything we learn about God's design for marriage should teach us something about the divine love from which it was created. A love that extends to all creation, married, single. But I want to pull back the lens a little bit further from what um, I mentioned in the beginning And just kind of remind us that the Song of Solomon is one of 66 books in the Bible. And within those 66 books, you have roughly seven different genres. And and what I mean by that are different types of literature. So you have prophetic literature like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. You have the gospel narratives like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then like we see in the Song of Solomon and in Psalms, you have poetry, And each unique genre has a different method or angle of interpretation. For example, the gospel accounts, as we know, record actual events that are literally interpreted. So when Jesus says that he went up to Jerusalem from Galilee, he literally climbed an elevation. If you've been to Israel, you know how true that is. And in poetry, however... Even though it's still describing actual events, it's using figurative language. So as we've seen, when the husband compares his wife to a horse, we know there's some meaning behind that, right? And the challenge of interpretation is clearly understanding that meaning behind it. But here's the most important thing of all, so please don't miss this. Everything in the Bible, in every book of the Bible, in every genre of the Bible, ultimately points to Jesus. The message of the gospel is the meta-narrative or the story behind the story of the entire book. It's why Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, all of them that testify about me. Everything points to Jesus. So that's the challenge for me as I work through this book with you is to to help us see the primary truths that apply to that covenant relationship of marriage, but also 
to allow those truths to enlighten the greater truth of God's love for us, whether single, married, or whatever place we may be. We all, every one of us, need to see the love that is made visible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and when I work through each passage, I try to have that in my mind. And so I hope that helps. But I requested something in the beginning, and I want to ask it again. Would you pray for me? Because my desire truly is to rightly handle God's word and to communicate that truth in a way that it's valuable for all of us, whether we're married or not. And so I would covet your prayers as we walk through the Song of Solomon together. In fact, let's just take some time to do that now. And if you would, pray for me as I open up God's word and we look at it together. Pray for yourself, for your heart to be open to that truth, that it would shape your mind, your affections, your desires. Pray for us as a church family that we would embrace these truths, then live them out collectively, encouraging each other towards love and good deeds. So would you do that? Let's take some time and then I'll open us up. Father, we humbly come before you this morning with strong conviction that your word is living and active. It is eternally relevant, applicable to our daily lives. Regardless of whether we're married or unmarried, we all need to hear the gospel, the truth of salvation through faith in Christ alone that we believe is the primary point of everything that is written in this book. So, Lord, as we open up this passage this morning, would you open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to embrace the beauty of the truth you want to speak to each of us individually, the way that you want to shape and reshape our relationships, whether that be in marriage or with one another and our families and our friendships. And, Lord, most importantly, would you help us see your love, your infinite love, love put on display through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Song of Solomon, and we'll pick up where we left off last in verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. So if you would, just follow along with me, where it says in verse 12, while the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. And so pleasant, indeed, Our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars. Our rafters, cypresses. I want to pause there because as we begin our passage this morning, we can see that there's more of a dialogue between the husband and wife in these verses. It's a delightful exchange of mutual admiration and affection. The wife begins the conversation in verse 12. 
highlighting the sweet smells of the fragrances of their love. Her perfume fills the room, and her eyes are set on her husband, which she identifies as the king. But as we saw last week, she also identified him as the shepherd. Remember? She wanted to find him out in the pasture with his flocks. And so I think this may be some of how that figurative language is at play within the poetry. Instead of identifying a specific occupation, maybe this is speaking to how she sees his character. As a king, she acknowledges his spiritual leadership within their marriage relationship, and she honors him in that role. But she also sees him as shepherd. So instead of just ruling over her with authority, he is compassionate and tender in his care. As a shepherd, he protects his wife. He provides care and comfort that she needs. So she looks to this shepherd king with affection in a room filled with fragrances. The NASB, as I read, says she sees him at his table. It probably more literally is his couch. And so we kind of get this idea that they are probably lying next to each other, his head on her chest. And to her, this scene is like an oasis. It's a safe place in the midst of a very dangerous world. We know that's true because she compares it to the vineyards of En Gedi. Now, who are my friends who went to Israel this summer? Okay, this should bring this story to life for you because you know what this is all about. En Gedi is an oasis in the midst of the desert. See, this is an area that is almost completely barren. I think I have a picture of, of the Judean wilderness here. And as we experienced, it was hot, it was dry, and it was scarcely inhabited in large part because there's no water. But right in the middle of this lifeless landscape is En Gedi. It's an oasis fed by a spring that is surrounded by lush vegetation, trees, and flowers. It's almost miraculous to witness this in the middle of the desert. But that's how this woman sees her marriage. It's an oasis. It's a safe place. In the midst of a dangerous world, it's lush. It's fertile. It's filled with life. And she is refreshed by the ever-present spring of her husband's love. And that affection that she feels for him is also shared by her husband as well. Twice he tells her, you are so beautiful to me. Yes, you are. Which is why I said last week, This is such a critical role for who we are as husbands. We need to verbally express our love to our wives. And men, let me just warn you. Do not deflect this and try to justify in your mind, oh, I don't need to say it. My wife knows that I love her. If you love her, then tell her with your words 
in her presence, just like we see in our passage. The husband then highlights the the beauty by, by looking into her eyes. He says that her eyes are like doves, which I believe characterizes the innocence of what he sees in her being. You may remember when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So I believe that the woman is, is, I mean, the man is looking into the eyes of his wife to see the innocent beauty of her heart. And she responds in kind. She says, how handsome and pleasant you are to me. It's this pleasant, kind demeanor that is so tender towards her. So for both the husband and the wife, I believe they actually see, what they actually see on the inside is what makes the outside so attractive to them. Because covenant love is so much deeper than just physical attraction. It's the melding of body, mind, and soul. A mysterious union that includes the whole being of who we are as persons. It's why we see in Genesis chapter 2, 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two shall be joined as, uh, and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's a mysterious union of our whole being allowing the the love to go past what we see on the outside, to value and appreciate and exalt what we see and know to be true on the inside. Look at how he continues in chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling, he says, among the maidens. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I take great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Here's where I think we see one of many reasons throughout the song where we're observing an actual marriage relationship. Because once again, the woman's insecurities rise to the surface. We looked at that last time as well. And here we see that she compares herself to specific flowers that are found in specific places. A rose that is found in the plains of Sharon. Or a lily that is found within the valleys. And what you need to know is that these are common flowers in familiar places. It'd be like us saying, like blue bonnets that fill the countryside in the hill country during spring. They fill the landscape with color, but they all look very much the same. And so what she's saying is, I'm really nothing special. I'm one of many. Maybe even in her insecurity, doubting her husband's own admiration because she feels so ordinary when she compares herself to other women. And once again, I think the husband here is a incredible student of his, of his wife's heart because I think he perceives some of her insecurity because she didn't mention comparing herself to anyone. 
But he knows that's what he's, she's doing. And so she said, and he says, basically, I can play that game as well. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So instead of seeing a valley that is filled with just ordinary flowers, he sees only one. And she is beautiful to him. She's extraordinary in his eyes. When he plays the comparison game, what he's saying is, listen, my beloved, no one else compares to you. His loving words stir her affection for him. And she understands as he communicates his love that their love truly is set apart, that it is sacred. And she finds security in that covenant relationship of marriage. She says, I can relax in his shade. I can delight in his fruit. She compares him to an apple tree that's in the forest, which I'll admit I've actually never seen before. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, a A forest is typically filled with evergreens, right? Ponderosa pines and Douglas firs and beautiful aspen groves. And those are all wonderful trees, but most of the time they are all different shades of green. So you can imagine how spectacular it would be if you're walking through the forest and then boom, all of a sudden is an apple tree with bright red fruit just staring at you. And that's the point, because that's how she sees him. He stands out from all the rest. He alone captures her attention. And I hope that you see as we're walking through this together, the shared and mutual affection. It's like he expresses his admiration for her, and it stirs her affection towards him. And so she expresses her affection in a similar way. We don't need to miss the significance of what is happening here because there's a powerful truth behind this. Do you remember what the outcome of the curse of sin, what outcome there was in the marriage relationship? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, God says, your desire, speaking to to the wife, will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And what he's communicating is that the, the curse of sin will bring tension into the marriage relationship. Instead of loving self sacrifice, sin leads to prideful self protection. The marriage, because of the influence of sin, became more about what's in it for me, looking to my spouse to meet my needs instead of seeking ways to love and serve the other person so that my needs don't matter compared to theirs. They're they're more important than me. But if that's what the curse of sin did to the relationship of marriage, do you see what is happening within the Song of Solomon? (laughs) That love is being redeemed. Instead of being against each other, they are clearly, undeniably for each other. There is a profound mutuality, a shared affection. It's redeeming God's original design for marriage, which 
We'll unpack a little more later, but I want you to hang on to that thought because it's helping us see that there is a love that has the power to redeem God's original design. So let's look at it together. Look at verse four. Chapter two, verse four. It says, he has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, or awaken my love until she pleases. The woman finishes out this song as she brought into her husband's banquet hall, or more literally in the original language, it was the wine house. Again, I think we see figurative language here where the, the house of wine is the place where they delight in their love. They savor in the shared affection and mutual delight of their marriage. And then she says, within that context, his banner over me is love. It's an image taken from the field of battle, really, where the banner is a flag that identifies the people. It's typically a a shield or an emblem that kind of represents their mission. And so the banner that represents the mission of their marriage is love. Because in love, her husband fights for his wife's highest good. In love, he goes to battle to protect her value and worth. In love, he rescues her time and time again from her negative, false narratives. It's love. And it's so rich And it's so weighty, it says that basically it makes her weak in the knees. She's lovesick, overwhelmed by the affection of her husband. And in response, he tenderly embraces her, putting his left hand under her head while embracing her with his right. Once again, as we've seen over and over again, our our lovers are face to face in a shared moment of intimacy And from here, she extends a warning. She speaks basically to the young maidens, the daughters of Jerusalem, those who are observing this marriage relationship with admiration. And she tells them, do not stir up, do not awaken love until it pleases. In other words, our love, That which you witness in this covenant marriage is sacred. It's a love that is protected within that covenant commitment of marriage. And the desires that we feel must only be fulfilled within the context of this sacred union. And therefore, true love, as ordained by God, will always, always wait. Because by waiting, what you're saying is this. I trust God's design more than the fulfillment of my own desires. It's a decision of faith. That's why you wait. I trust God's design more than the fulfillment of my own desires. 
It's based on the belief that our deepest love and affection cannot be divorced from our relationship with God. I think you've probably seen this image before. It's very familiar, but I think it's really helpful because it helps us see that as two people, a a husband and wife, grow closer in their relationship to the Lord, they will inevitably grow closer in their relationship with one another. These two relationships are interdependent, inseparable with one another. And as we learned last week, the opposite can be true as well. Growing apart from your spouse will inevitably create distance in your relationship with God. That's why Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding manner, lest your prayers be hindered. It's revealing just how interdependent these two relationships are. And I don't know that we fully appreciate the significance of that in our world today. So as we finish up, I want to take us back to the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. Because I believe that's where the author of the song wants us to go. That's why he uses all this imagery from the garden. Did you notice it? All the flowers, trees, streams of water. We actually see the same thing when you look at the construction of the tabernacle and the temple for the very same reason. It wants to take us back to the garden of God's original design, where man and woman were created in the image of God, made to flourish in his life-giving presence. But as we know, the selfishness of sin destroyed all that God had ordained. It created conflict in relationships, whether that's the marriage relationship or the family relationship. We see it extend to communities and even conflict between countries. Our world is marked by dissension and disunity. And here's the reason why. Our hearts are filled with pride. And apart from God's intervention, there is absolutely no way to break free because left to ourselves, our hearts are bent on rebellion. We've seen that all throughout human history over and over again. Romans 3.12 tells us all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. But God, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, being rich in mercy, and here's why, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. See, it was the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross that broke the power of sin's control, that released us from the prison of our own pride. He made a way for God's original design to be redeemed so that we can live in that life-giving relationship that we were created for, that we can flourish in the fellowship that we are intended to, to have with one another, whether that's our marriage or within our families or within our church. We see the evidence of redeeming love being put on display 
in the Song of Solomon. There's profound mutuality. There's shared affection as each one affirms their love for the other. A redeeming love that takes us back to God's original design. Isn't that beautiful? But those same attributes that we see being played out within the marriage relationship should actually exist throughout the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that what we see in the Song of Solomon? But that's a love that we should see throughout the church. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, that's part of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, and that is to, to bring heavenly realities into our everyday lives, to live in a way that, that puts the gospel on display, taking God's original design in the garden and bringing it into everyday life. Living in that life-giving relationship with God, flourishing in our relationships with one another. So here's my challenge for us. Let's set our minds on living that out so faithfully over this next week. I wanna encourage you, take the initiative. You, take the initiative to express love and affirmation to someone else. Loving each other, as Paul says, with that brotherly affection. And I love that idea of trying to outdo one another by showing honor. And you kind of feel like that's what's happening in the Song of Songs. One of them gives an affirmation only to be followed by another one trying to outdo the other one in showing honor. And that same love and affection should exist throughout the body of Christ. And it's one of the ways that we remind each other of God's infinite love for us because we're only pouring out of what has been filled up in us as we pursue that relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beauty of the song that so wonderfully portrays all of the imagery of life as you designed it to be, living in relationship with you and in fellowship with one another, flourishing in our marriages, flourishing in our families, flourishing in our friendships, so that this shared affection and mutuality, this deep love that brings unity becomes the trademark characteristic as who, of who we are as the people of God bringing heavenly realities originally ordained by God into our everyday lives right here on earth. Lord, may we be faithful to live this out, not waiting on someone else, but taking the initiative ourselves to express love and affirmation to one another, outdoing one another in showing honor, reminding each one of us of the infinite love of God who loved us first. We love because he first loved us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
That's good news, right? It's so good. So let me give you a very practical step to what we walked through this morning. I want to encourage you to come tonight to the worship night. And here's why. I've told more, multiple couples who are married, probably the most wonderful thing that you can do to build bonds of love in your relationship is pray together. If you're not praying together, you need to start praying together because it builds deep bonds of affection and love. But the same thing is true throughout the body. So in order to live out what we learned this morning in our passage, let's come tonight and do just that. Let's pray together with and for one another as we spend time in worship together. And one of the ways that you might put that practice or uh, apply this is maybe you need to call somebody and say, hey, well, let's go together. Maybe some people don't feel comfortable driving at night when it gets a little later. Then say, hey, can I come get you so you don't have to drive? It's just a simple, practical way, and I would encourage you to consider that.